Welcome to On The Spot with Melinda Garvey, the On The Dot interview series where we sit down with some of the most intriguing and interesting women to watch featured in our daily email newsletter and podcast, Four Minutes with On The Dot. Make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss a single episode of On The Spot, now available every Thursday on your favorite podcast streaming services. Today, I'm chatting with the founder and owner of Soapwalla Kitchen, Rachel Winard. Without further ado, let's start the show. Well, I'm here today on the spot with Melinda Garvey with Rachel Winard, and really excited to be talking to her from New York City. I love all you New Yorkers. I've actually met so many women from New York over the last couple of years as we've branched out with On The Dot and Gone Global. And you guys have such an amazing female entrepreneurship community there. I really love it. So thank you for being here and being on the show. And thank you for being part of that badass uh, entrepreneurial community. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit about that so you can impart all your wonderful knowledge to us. Wonderful. I'm really excited. And thank you for having me. So Rachel has a company called Soapwalla. And um, you have a really, really interesting path to that. You know, we talk a lot about the importance of women understanding that, especially in this day and age, obviously you don't just go into one job and stay, but you also, you know, this entrepreneurship thing, sometimes it comes about really unexpectedly. So I'd love for you to share your journey with us because you do have a super interesting path that you took. And um, I'd love for you just to, to share it and tell us what that looks like for you. Absolutely. So I really started off my, my professional life from a very young age. I started playing violin when I was four. I like to say it was my first love and my first language. Mm-hmm. I speak and I experience the world through music, still to this day. I went professional when I was 12. I was a professional classical violinist. Um, I graduated high school early. I went to Juilliard. I toured. I did the whole thing. And it was great because from the time I was in elementary school, I knew with 100% certainty what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Wow. Which is not that common, right? I mean, people just don't know what they want to do. So that's pretty amazing. It was great until I hit the age of 19 and realized that the business of music was not the same as the art of music and that the business side was not the fit for me that the art form was. So... That was hard. It was a really hard period. I was also coming out as a lesbian at the same time. So it was, it was a really fun time <laughs> of complete uncertainty in every aspect of my life. I did a 180. I sort of fell into law school as what seemed like a safe fallback at the time. A lot of people out there listening are, are chuckling right now, like fall into law school. I mean, I was <laughs> like, oh, well, maybe law school. Sure. Why not? <laughs> no kidding. Um, <laughs> I love, I love philosophy as well. I think there's a lot of overlap between music and philosophy. And there's a lot of philosophical application to law um, in the esoteric sense, not necessarily in the practical sense. Yes. So anyway, one thing led to another. Um, I knew I really wanted to be in New York. I love New York. I've lived here since 95. It just is home to me. So I applied to Columbia Law School. I got in. I wish I were exaggerating when I said about 15 minutes into that first day of law school, I sat in my seat and thought, oh my God, this is not for me. But I was $55,000 in debt at that point. Once you sign your name on that dotted line, you're, you're in. And also I, I had this running commentary in my head of, I've already quit one career. I can't quit another. 
Right. Um, so I stuck it out. And it was a very intense three-year period of my life. During that time, I also got very sick and I was diagnosed with systemic lupus erythematosus, or lupus for short. And lupus is an autoimmune illness. It's a chronic autoimmune illness. And that's just a fancy way of saying that your body gets confused and your cells attack themselves, thinking that your own cells are foreign bodies. So you can get a host of illnesses that crop up as a result of this. So that was my law school experience. My father and my brother were attorneys and go, I saw the law school thing. And it's, I mean, it's not for the faint of heart. No, it's or, brutal. Or certainly of, of body, right? If you were not feeling your best, I'm, I can only imagine that must have been exponentially more difficult for you. It was a very difficult period. It wasn't easy. I graduated and then I practiced law for four years in New York City. I practiced at two large law firms. It never felt comfortable. I found the most artistic kind of law I could find, which was New York City land use. So development of properties in New York City proper. And I worked with pro bono clients. So I worked with art institutes and museums and music programs and not-for-profits and helped them create a building that would support whatever services that they were providing in, inside. So that was great. Fascinating, actually. It was great. It really was. Like the, the concepts that I got to work with and the people who I got to work with were wonderful. And, you know, at the second law firm where I spent most of my professional career, I'm still friends with my bosses, with the partners um, and associates I worked with. I have just the highest regard for them. But the practice of law is inherently high, high, high stress. And if you have an autoimmune illness that is triggered by stress, that is no bueno. So I was pretty much very, very ill the whole time I was practicing. For a year and a half of my four-year practice, I was on chemotherapy because my specialists decided if they couldn't get the illness under control, meaning they couldn't get my immune system under control, they would just knock it out completely, which is not a fun way to live. So during that whole time, actually, even from I'd say the first year of law school when I really started getting sick, my skin became very sensitive as well, which is very common. Your skin has fast cell turnover rate, and it's your largest organ. So almost everyone with lupus will have a host of different ways in which that illness presents itself, but all of us have a skin component one way or other. And so I tried everything on the market that said it was hypoallergenic or organic or sensitive skin, natural, all those buzzwords. Right. And at the time, that's exactly what they were. They were all buzzwords. There wasn't a lot of meaning or regulation behind them. And I found that those products not only didn't help my skin, they were actually exacerbating my skin issues. So out of desperation late one night, I thought, well, if I can't find it, I'm going to have to make it. So that led me down a path of seven years of behind the scenes the whole time I was in law school and practicing law, teaching myself formulation, chemistry, herbology, aromatherapy, and cultivating a skincare regimen that I could use. And as my friends and family members realized that this was no longer a hobby, but like a real passion, they started using the products and asking for products as well. And so both of these different um, parts of my life converged. I had a really acute illness period I knew something needed to change. So I knew um, at that point, I decided I was going to go to India for four months, get my health in order, 
um, see an Ayurvedic doctor. Ayurveda is uh, traditional Indian medicine. I'd already been uh, researching it really from the, the skincare side, but I was, I was fascinated with the principles. It really spoke to me. So I took a hiatus from the law firm. I went to India for four months. I worked with the doctor every single day and I felt better than I had since prior to my diagnosis. And when I came back and my, my blood levels were clear for the first time since I'd been diagnosed. So I could really see that this made a difference. Um, but of course, as I got back into my routine and the incredible high stress that legal life provides, <laughs> um, I knew it wasn't a long-term option for me. So I quit law. Um, I had that moment of, oh my God, I'm like not even 30 and I've quit two careers now. Like what is wrong with me? And I really floundered for a while. And that, so there was a year and a half period after I left the law firm before I premiered Soapwalla that I really didn't know what I was going to do. And that whole time, um, my closest friends and family were really gently suggesting that I try selling my products. And because it was such a passion for me, I was really hesitant to do so because I'd already had this experience with music where something I loved when I made it my business, it just wasn't the same. And so it was really scary for me to even contemplate that. But December 2009, I made the jump and... Here I am now. This December will be our ninth birthday. Wow. Well, and I, I sort of chuckle at you talking about, you know, leaving that high stress environment of law because I, I think that, that we can all attest that entrepreneurship, <laughs> not that I know anything more stressful. I'm, I'm on my second venture and yes. I keep th saying to myself, why, why did I do this to myself? Why? I mean, yeah. the anxiety, but I think it's different maybe when there's a stress that's fueled by your passion, fueled by Very something much. you believe in and is, is in your heart, then, you know, even though, sure, I'm sure you, you, you had found your little niche of law, but if 15 minutes into law school, you knew it wasn't the right thing, I think stress that's not fueled by passion can be really, really destructive, which obviously was, you know, but mentally and physically, you know, for you, you know, and we, we talk a lot about jet into this entrepreneurship thing. And of course, you know, being a female entrepreneur is challenging. We talk a lot um, about those challenges, um, but being an LGBTQ entrepreneur probably has an extra layer. And I'd love for you to share just maybe some things that you've sort of experienced as a woman, how that maybe, you know, held you back or what you had to overcome that was a little bit different. Absolutely. So I'm in skincare and skincare, there's a very traditional concept of image behind that. I don't fit that image in any way, shape, or form. First, I'm not one of the 97% of companies that are run by men, because the vast, vast majority of skincare companies around the world are run by men. Also, I am not, not straight, and I don't present as terribly feminine. Um, I joke around that I look like a 12-year-old boy, and I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I just, I look very young, and I look very kind of um, boyish. <laughs> so definitely when I'm on a panel with other people who look more traditional, I really do stand out. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think visibility is crucial for those of us who've suffered from invisibility bias, meaning that like there's not even like negative press about us, we're just completely ignored. There's no mention of us at all anywhere in society. So um, I think it's important. I definitely have felt discomfort from others 
from my presentation. And there's just a lot of looking right over me, which I've learned to become louder. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Right. I think women can be socialized to be meek and quiet and permissive. And when you run a business, you get to decide how you will be the boss, which I love because our work environment is not like any other work environment I've ever been a part of. I really strive to create a company culture that is inclusive and that listens and that is respectful. And I hear that back from my employees. And so I think that's one way in which um, my experiences walking through the world have really helped create a positive impact for our, our employees, which of course just feeds back to me because I get their best work. Like it's, it's a win-win for everybody. And also learning how to stand up for myself. I will get literally looked over because I'm also small. I'm five feet. And like hey, me too. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I have worked at trade shows where people will literally look right over me at whoever's <laughs> taller standing next hey, to me. I, I always wear high heels though, because you know, nobody, <laughs> when I take off my heels, I'm in flip flops. People are like, I didn't know you were that short. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm always trying to, to, to get up there a little bit. Oh, if I wore heels, I would have broken ankles, like just for the rest <laughs> of my life. So <laughs> I'm too clumsy. <laughs> but uh, I, I remember distinctly, we were working at trade show, my partner, Stacy and I, and she's 5'8". Mm -hmm. And this had happened like six times in a 30 minute period where people would look straight through me and go to her because she was taller. And this um, gentleman came in and asked her a question and she said, you really should talk to Rachel, who's right here, who's the CEO. And he took one look at me and then he went right back to talking to her. Wow. And that is something that I've seen over and over and over again. Talk about overcoming this by being a little bit loud and out there. Can you, you know, kind of give an example? So, so in that situation, which is a great example, what do you do to overcome that? I, so the way I am loud is I sit back and watch and see what happens, like see how the person responds. Mm -hmm. um, if I'm on a panel and I get interrupted multiple times, then I will say, excuse me, I wasn't finished. Mm -hmm. If it's in a one-on-one -on -one situation like this, I like to just sit back and see how the person recovers <laughs> from <laughs> sort of their, their biases being pointed out. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it is interesting. We've talked a lot about unconscious bias, and it's something that I made a commitment, I don't know, several months ago, I had actually heard a panel, and, you know, I'd heard people talk about it and that kind of thing, but I actually heard a panel, it was really impactful to me just about how we all have unconscious bias. So I started just listening to myself and keeping myself in, in check, like I was my own little monitor. I can consider myself, I mean, I'm pretty open, but I was like, I am terrible. You know, <laughs> and I would go, oh, did, hey, stop it. But I, I'm really, it's amazing for someone like me who I would say, you know, I, and I am live and breathe in this space and women's empowerment, and I find myself judging. It's something that's so naturally built into us that we really have to be very, very conscious about. And I'll stop myself and I will tell you, here's the thing that really blew me back. You know, that whole thing about, oh, first impressions, blah, blah, blah. You know, well, what I realize is that 99 times out of 100, my first impression, my, my unconscious bias, when I had that filter on, it was wrong. Yeah. Wrong about the person. 
and I've gone on and I think that probably I have not pursued relationships, business things, not respected somebody in there because I had that filter and I didn't even know it. Yeah. So it's, I think it's really, really important that, you know, we talk about this and especially as women when, you know, we do get kind of a, a bad rap and somewhat rightfully so about not supporting one another. Yes. And we've got to create an environment where we have that, where we know unequivocally when you walk into a room that every other woman in that room has your back. Yes, I fully agree. I fully agree. One, I can see it when other people, like I can see when they have their first impressions of me. It's even when people think it's subtle, you, it generally, something gives them away. Yeah. So depending on the situation, like I said, I don't, first I'll never belittle someone publicly or put someone on the spot like that. One, it's not nice. I wouldn't want it to be done to me. And two, I don't think it furthers your cause of having someone feel more inclusive to be singled out in that way. So I am very careful or mindful, I should say, about how I do have these conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, And second, the quote I love is... um, a rising tide, you know, raises all boats. That's a paraphrase. But I really think that's absolutely the case. When a group that's in the minority, power, money, politically, whatever the case may be, it can feel like there's such a scarcity of resources that we have to fight to the death for that one little piece of the pie. But the fact is, if we all band together and support one another, we create our own pie. We all win. That's right. I love the, the word you use there because that's how we talk about what we're trying to do with On The Dot and by having these kinds of interviews because part of the problem is we're living in this world of scarcity. We don't really have scarcity. There are incredible women doing amazing things, but we don't see them in the media. We don't hear about them. We don't see those role models. So we believe things are scarce. So we believe we only maybe have one tiny opportunity and so we're competitive, right? It makes our competitive gene go into high gear. Whereas I think that if we could change our mindset to one of abundance, and that's what we're trying to do. Every day we're presenting role models and women like you, so that when you turn around, you go, oh my gosh, there are tons of successful, what are they talking about? There's not, you know, I get there's some problems to solve, you know, inequality of pay and me too and time's up and those things are really important. We have to start living on this other end of, of this mindset of abundance. You know, it's great that you sort of can see past that and in your own you say you're loud, but in your own quiet way, you are, are leading somebody, you know, to come and see that, that you are part of that abundance. That's awesome. I love that. Thank you. Okay. So entrepreneurship. Um, <laughs> I know that, that we had to reschedule because of a kind of a crazy thing. I the question was really about like, what's your least favorite thing about entrepreneurship? There's a lot of really great things. People, I think, see, think it's this cool, sexy thing. Oh, wow, they're an entrepreneur. But let's just talk a little bit about that world of what goes on behind the scenes, you know, behind the pretty website (laughs) and the nice smelling products. (laughs) What's happening, you know, in your world? And and we had to change our interview. And I would just love for you to share with our audience, just because I think it's just so pertinent to what happens, you know, in this world. I think the thing that's the best about entrepreneurship is the flip side as well, which is that you're the boss of everything. So (laughs) when things go great, go you. And when things go badly, you just don't sleep. (laughs) So we had, I've nicknamed it now monsoon season, like the summer in New York. We just have torrential rains every day now. I'm not sure what's going on. I don't ever remember such a wet, wet summer, which is a problem when you're 
studio, your production studio like ours is housed in an old factory that was built in like the 1840s. So we've had, well, what started out as a trickling flood uh, or trickling leak turned into a full on flood with um, a particularly bad downfall we had last week. So I had to scrap a bunch of equipment and raw materials and scramble and it's been, it's been one hell of a week. It's still ongoing. We don't have electrical in our main production area because <laughs> the water got into our electrical. So now I wake up in a dead panic in the middle of the night that we're, I'm gonna get a call about an electrical fire. <laughs> it is what it is, you know? You just, you gotta roll with the punches. We have to as an entrepreneur. There's always gonna be something crazy thrown your way, good, bad, otherwise. And it doesn't really matter what it is, like the quality of the thing. You gotta breathe and just go with it. Absolutely. So what advice would you give to um, millennial or you know, younger women that are coming out of college or maybe those millennial women that are looking for their next big you know, promotion or leap, you know, that next yes. thing for them? What advice would you, you know, give them just like finding their, their path, finding their passion? There's something you really like to do and it really feeds you. This is not sexy advice, but it's really served me well my entire life. Put your head down, do the work, try to drown out all that other noise because the world is very noisy. Everyone looks like they're succeeding at every single thing they do. There's no such thing as an overnight success. Yeah, I, I thank goodness that I didn't have social media when I was up and coming because I'm not sure, I feel the pressure from it now. I still do. Yeah, it's, uh, it's what people want you to see. It's very much a... I mean, this word is overused now, but it is very much a curated experience of somebody's life. Mm -hmm. So as much as you can, put your head down, do that work, and that will serve you. Even if you leave that field, the work you put in will serve you for the right. rest of your life. And if you're going up for a promotion, make a list. Don't be afraid to toot your own horn. I think women aren't socialized to do that either. And you don't have to be obnoxious about it. And you can do it in your own voice or in whatever way feels most comfortable to you. But know your worth. That's right. Well, and I think that also talking about the promotion, you don't have to have every box ticked. If there's a list of qualifications, just like a man would, if you've got a few of those, go for it. Because yes. you have to believe in your ability to grow and learn. And yes. I would rather, and, and most bosses I know, I would rather hire someone not with 100% of the experience, but the drive. Because if somebody already yes, has 100% yes, yes. of the experience, then they're going to get bored, right? Yep. I look at someone who's got a little bit of gap, but I see they've got, they've got enough of that baseline to really go for it. I'm and so glad you said that. Back. Yeah, when I hire, I look for work ethic and motivation mm -hmm. because I can teach you the experience. I can't get you excited about the job. That's what I look for. If you have a strong work ethic, you have my respect. And if you have excitement about the job, then I'm excited about you. Well, you know, and it's interesting, um, just to kind of go back to something else you said, just about keeping your head down, tuning out the noise. And I would imagine that, you know, you think about in your world as a musician, you know, oftentimes musicians, they can hear themselves, but they drown out everything else. And it's because it's that focus. You need to be able to hear your notes and what you're doing. And I think that's a really key word because I think a lot of people think that 
entrepreneurship is sort of this renegade, woohoo, you know, and these crazy ideas. And, and I'm not saying there aren't some people out there, but then the ones that are successful have someone coming up behind them doing that meticulous work. So to be an yes. entrepreneur, you know, if, if you're going to go in on your own, you do have to have that heads down focus and to listen to the beat of your own drum, <laughs> so to speak. Very much so. Also, it's not easy. You're building something from scratch. It's arguably the hardest kind of job out there. There's nothing to fall back on but you. So you want that work there. <laughs> you want that foundation there because that will serve you in a myriad of ways once you're in it, once you're in the thick of it. Absolutely. So what's next for you and for Soapwalla? What are we going to see out of you? I know you've got deodorants, which everyone raves about. I read all the reviews, <laughs> you know, what's next for, for you? Are you developing more product lines or? I'm working on a couple different products right now. I'm, I'm the sole formulator. So I'm working on a natural sunscreen that I can use. I have most sensitive skin of anyone I know, and I can't use 99% of the sunscreens out there, natural or otherwise. So I've been working on a sunscreen for a while. Um, we also have a spot treatment that will be coming out probably early 2019. I have some uh, work trips to Europe planned for the fall, as well as to the West Coast. Those are the big things right now. So do you just sell in the U.S. at this point, or do you sell all over? No, we're in 250 retailers in 30 countries around the globe. Wow. Because I could imagine that a lot of, when you said Europe, a lot of, um, you know, countries I know, my, my husband is from New Zealand, so we're in New Zealand a lot. And they're, they're horrified at most of the stuff that Americans have. My mother-in-law calls it too many numbers. You know, if, there are, if you read the back of any food package, yes. like, there's so many numbers on there. I don't, eat, I don't use products or eat food with numbers. Yep. <laughs> so I'd imagine that that is very appealing to to other countries, you know, we've gotten so much, but hopefully that this sort of natural product, I mean, I feel like it really is up and coming in natural foods as well, so. I think it's the movement that's not going anywhere, especially here. I would say Europe's probably a decade ahead of us. They've really been thinking about the quality versus quantity of all of their consumables, whether it's food or personal care for a good 20 years. But it's also great because I get the feedback from that market and I have a better sense of how to implement that in the States. Well, so last thing I want to just ask you about, since we're all about providing role models, do you have a role model or have you had role models or mentors or people along the way, someone who really stands out, who, um, who you want to share? Absolutely. Um, I would say the two biggest business role models for me are Eileen Fisher and Patagonia. Neither of them are skincare companies, but both of those companies have CEOs with a very clear vision, really strong company culture, and dedicated employee base. And they've changed the worlds in their respective fields while maintaining those ethos and principles upon which the companies were founded. So those are my big corporate role models. Well, it's, it's interesting that you, you say that too, because I think that um, when we talk about role models and, and providing role models. It doesn't, your role model doesn't have to look exactly like you. Oftentimes, no. you know, a mentor is someone maybe, you know, especially if it's inside a company that who's that next couple rungs up and who's going to take you on their path to get you into that position. It might be one little thread, like you talked about. It's not, they don't have anything to do with skincare, but no. when you look at sort of what you wanted to build and can follow that, and I think that's the important things. We can have hundreds, thousands of role models. You know, it's a, it, exciting to be able to, to have people that we can follow and women like you. So thank you so much for, for being here.
Um, I know you're going through a lot right now, so appreciate you sharing that and also appreciate that you took the time to be here and to be a role model for other women when you're in the midst of chaos. Anyway, well, well, thank you so much. We wish you the very best of luck and um, we will have all the links here. You can go to soapwalla.com to find all of Rachel's amazing products and to keep track of her and see what she does next. But of course, we'll have all the links in this podcast as well. So thanks so much. We will look forward to watching what you do next. Thank you. Thank you, Melinda. Looking for more inspiration, advice, and direction? Subscribe to our free daily email newsletter and podcast, Four Minutes with On The Dot, where we provide you with the tools and motivation you need to get out there and be the badass you are meant to be. Don't miss Catch Next Thursday's episode where we sit down with the former president for Walt Disney Resorts, Meg Crofton, in her very first podcast debut. We are focused on your success, which is why we are hosting the very first On The Dot See It To Be It Success Summit in Austin, Texas. Join us on Thursday, October 18th at Vintage Villas for a day jam-packed with panels, workshops, and networking opportunities with some of the best in the biz including Meredith Walker, the co-founder of Amy Poehler's Smart Girls, China Widener, the National Strategy and Operations Diversity and Inclusion Leader at Deloitte, Catherine Stiles, the founder of Barbecue Wife, and so many more successful women and entrepreneurs. Have you purchased your tickets for the See It To Be It Success Summit? What are you waiting for? Head on over to onthedotwoman.com to purchase your tickets today.